Hello, hello, hello. My name is Robert. I am the recovery guy, and you have entered into the fix. Robert, I'm a recovered alcoholic, and uh, by the grace of a loving God, uh, amazing sponsorship, uh, the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, meetings at the big book, sometimes in different order, but always those things. I haven't found it necessary to drink or take any mind-altering chemicals since April 25th of 1986, and, uh, and for that I owe AA my life. Um, and I think we can be done. You know, uh, I, uh, I'm always grateful to see newcomers come in. Um, you know, if there's, if there's anything I'll never forget, it's, it's coming through those doors the first time. Had I known what AA was going to be like, I'd have come a lot sooner. But I just didn't know that a place like this existed. And they told me when I first got here, uh, I got here, matter of fact, um, kind of an important date, February 9th, which was yesterday, of 1986, I stood in front of the mirror and I was 32 years old and I was going to die. And there was nothing I could do about it. And that morning, 38 years ago, I looked in this thing called the Yellow Pages. So for you youngsters, it's, it's a book, and they're yellow, and alphabetically it's, it's listed. And, and ironically enough, I didn't look under self-help. I didn't look under Mac's wife. I didn't look under anyone else's name. I looked under alcoholism. And for me, who lived in denial, to look under alcoholism was the first miracle outside of keeping me alive that God would begin performing in my life. And that morning, February 9th of 1986, after a number of phone calls, I went into treatment at the Nevada Treatment Center on Martin Luther King Boulevard in, um, in Las Vegas. And that was the beginning of my journey. And so when I see a newcomer come in, um, it says that we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. And we don't beg you to be fearless and thorough from the very start so we can stay sober. Most of us in this room have been around for a while. We're going to sleep like a baby whether you go in or stay, go out or stay. I mean, unfortunately, some will go out and we feel bad about that. But, but our obligation ends and begins at the same place. You know, we had a spiritual awakening and as a result of these sets, we tried to carry this message to the alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Just like step nine. You know, step nine says, may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So me making that amends completes the amends. I would like you to think I'm not an a-hole or an idiot or, or a person who would mean you harm, but that it, that's not necessary. And the same way, that we beg of you to be fearless and thorough because we don't want you to go through any more than you have gone through and we don't want you to go through what many of us had to go through to get here. 
I don't want you to be on your third marriage. Now, I've been married 35 years, but it took me three times in Alcoholics Anonymous just to stop hurting women. You know, and I was the kind of drunk that physically moved his daughters away from the front door as they were crying so I could go drink one more time. I can't tell you how many jobs I've had because it's an insurmountable number. I can't tell you how many times I was fired because I disappointed every employer I ever had. Brothers and sisters wouldn't call me anymore. Uh, my dad, after my relapse, dropped me off at the Red Butler Motel in Las Vegas, Nevada, and said, your mother and I aren't going to want you to die. That's what my dad said to me. So if we can be the difference in you not going through some of those things, and there's more things than that, if we can be that 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 intermediary, if we can be that difference between you and you experiencing those things, are you dying as a direct result? Because untreated alcoholism will kill us. You know, if you're old like me, some of you are, you remember this show called Let's Make a Deal, right? With Monty Hall. And there was door number one. And door number two. And then there was door number three. So if you got the big jackpot at one or two, there was no, you want to trade that for door? There is no door number three. We have a disease that will tell us we don't have it. It's one of the only diseases known to man. That denial is the chief culprit. The chief culprit. And what's, what's devastating about this disease is it's arrestable. I call myself a recovered alcoholic because I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. It says in the forward to the first edition, that's precisely, and they even italicize it for people like me who don't pay attention. So they italicize, this is precisely why we wrote this book. We hope that this book is so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. So that tells me if I follow the plan of recovery, I can recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And, I, and I've done that. And I continue to do that today. I continue to work steps 10, 11, and 12. I was on the phone with my sponsor. On my way over here, I was over at a sponsee's house before that. I was in a meeting uh, yesterday afternoon. You know, I still do the things. And that's what's great about this program. When, when I got here, they didn't have to say about it. Because, Robert, this is one twisted F. We better think of something because this guy is sicker than the next. No, they said they laid the tools that, at, that they had at their disposal, which there wasn't a fourth edition in those days. And, and they said, here's the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. They told me that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was like a giant adjustable wrench that would fit any nut who walks in. And that was me. Because I wasn't sure, and, and this is where I think we all will agree. Because some of us, we raise our hand, and we're not quite sure we're an alcoholic, but we see other people raise our hand, and we don't want to be different, so we raise our hand and say, my name is Robert, I'm alcoholic. Just to fit in. 
And, and my friend told me, he said, if you're not sure you're an alcoholic, stick around because you'll do till one shows up, which is actually pretty funny to me to this day. And, but we raise our hand, but in chapter three, on, on page 30, more about alcoholism, it says, we had to concede to our innermost self that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. Somehow I missed that along the way. I went right to step one, and I said, I admitted I'm powerless over alcohol, that my life had become unmanageable. So I raised my hand to admit, but I hadn't done the real work, which is admit to a, no, concede, because my sponsor catches me on that word all the time. I had to concede, and if you look at that word concede, it means to give up, to surrender, to set everything aside, any power we thought we had, to the truth, which was, I'm a true alcoholic. I'm a real alcoholic. You know, and to finally come to that place where I know, I finally know what's wrong with me. And I found a group of people who were happy and sober at the same time in a way that I could understand. And I could understand because you could understand me. And where so many of us come from that is a whole other world. It's like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. In the beginning, the movie is black and white. And then somewhere, when she follows the yellow brick road, it becomes in color. Did you ever notice that? It's black and white until the storms, the tornadoes, everything. When she comes upon the yellow brick road, the movie becomes in color. And that's how my life was. When I was out there, and I call it ripping and running, because that's what I did, my last six years I spent in drinking was in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I got sober in Las Vegas. And I tell people that moving from California to Las Vegas was like taking a fender bender and turning it into a head-on collision. I am surprised it took me six years to get to AA. It gives you an idea of how sick some of us are. And how denial just reigns true in us. You know, because when alcohol becomes breath, when it becomes as valuable as the air that you breathe, you do anything to protect it. Because I would do anything. If you, if you came up and started disturbing me, I would do everything I possibly could to, to get your hand off me so I could breathe. And that's the way... I became an alcohol, and, I, and I'm amazed that I didn't kill who I call the Jones Family Five. I'm amazed that I didn't wake up in jail one morning and find out that I killed an innocent family just because they were going through an intersection. I had a friend of mine named Jim. He would say that he is, his name is Jim. He's a lucky alcoholic. And I said, Jim, why are you a lucky alcoholic? There's nothing lucky about this program. He says, I'm lucky because all the things that could have happened didn't happen. And I thought, I can, I can relate to that. Because we do get fortunate. Because if we go to jails and institutions or skid row missions and we see some of the people, especially in prisons. If you've never gone into a prison and gotten prison clearance or done an H&I committee and treatment centers, I suggest that you do that as part of your service. Because then and there you will see, you will meet people who didn't do nearly some of the things that you and I have done, and yet they got caught doing what they did. And they're doing 10, 20, 30 years. 
and we hear the bars close behind us. And if you've never felt that feeling, I invite you. The sense of humility and gratitude when you're leaving a prison and you get to leave and you hear the doors clang behind you, you'll hopefully you'll drop to your knees in some form or another and say, God, thank you. Because I can see God's grace, I just can't see his mercy. I know what God is doing for me, I don't know what God kept me from. And that is the miracle of this program. Because where, where you and I come from is a dark and it's a lonely place for many of us. You know, so many of us start out at such a young age, five, six, seven years old, and we're already feeling uncomfortable with who we are. We, we just don't fit in. Many of us don't. We can see people, parents, family members, friends, they love us and they care about us, but somewhere along the line, there's a disconnect. We just can't feel what they're trying to give. And all along, we think something's wrong with us. Something's wrong. And I believe, and my sobriety has borne it out for me personally, we can only handle that feeling so long. And it's not surprising that most of us in this room tonight started drinking and many of us using between 13 and 15 years old. Pretty, pretty characteristic. Not that I'm a rocket scientist, um, although I have been, and then I woke up and it was just all me, right? Uh, that's my ego. Um, but, but invariably, somewhere in that window, we, we wake up and we think, I can't take this pain anymore. And, and oftentimes through um, innocent experimentation, we take our first drink. And boy, oh boy, that was a difference maker. That first drink, because when you, when you come from nothing and you are nothing and you're convinced you're always gonna be in nothing, that first drink told me I was an almost. And when you're a nothing and you get to be an almost, you have a tendency to want to do that thing that made you feel the only time I ever felt from 14 years on, and eventually it turned on me. In Japan, they have a phrase, first a man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes the man. You know, when you get to that stage where the drink takes the man, we move into that stage of chronic alcoholism and we can never safely drink alcohol again. But when I just tried to recapture that moment of being an almost, and it didn't take long. Even, even at 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, I could only drink periodically because of school and, and, and parents and things. So I started introducing a lot of different drugs. I hadn't done psychedelics yet, but I did a lot of speed, smoked a lot of pot, but I drank and drank and drank and drank and drank. Everything revolved around drinking. All the other things I did was to try to put the finishing touches to make my feel good feel good, right? Because you can only drink so much and then you pass out or get caught. But by the time I was 18 years old, so it took only four years 
for me to go from being an almost, and I'll never forget it, we had moved from Southern California up to Corvallis, Oregon, and on January 3rd of 1972, I turned 18 years old, and I walked into the registrar's office at my high school and said, I'm dropping out of school. And they said, you can't do that. And I said, I can do anything I want. I'm 18 years old. And I didn't know that it was clearing the field for me to do what I wanted to do, and that was drink full-time. By that time, at, in just four short years of periodic drinking, I went from thinking, this made me feel good, to needing to do this to have a sense of balance at all. And the fact that I'm even here tonight, let alone have the life that I have, is, is only God's grace in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything I have that's good about me, I guarantee you, it's from the first 164 pages of this book. Nothing that I have, nothing that I appreciate, nothing that gives me that feeling where I can lay my head down at night and say, this has been a good day. Nothing comes that it doesn't come from these, these rooms. And that's what I want to invite you to. If you're lonely, like I was lonely, if you're in despair, like so many of us are, in the beginning, all you got to do is stay. Just stay. You know, I love the cliche, we'll love you until you can learn how to love yourself. Well, the good news is, they love me after I learn how to love myself. And that's what's amazing about, about this program. You know, I, I believe in sponsorship so much. My sponsor just celebrated uh, 44 years of sobriety. I've known him from day one. He knew me from February 9th, the, the minute I had an AA meeting, he was there in the club. I had a different sponsor of 32 years and he passed away of cancer four and a half years ago. And when he passed away, I went to Will. I said, you know, I need you to be my sponsor. You've been my friend, but Jack is dying. He knew Jack and, uh, and, and, and he became my sponsor at that time. So if you're new or relatively new and you don't have a sponsor, don't leave tonight without a sponsor. Come and talk to me. I know many people in AA. We're, we're going to help you because, you know, it says in the big book, without help, it is too much for us. But there exists one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Let us be the higher power in your life until you can find a new one. Because I went through, when I became 18 years old, you know, I didn't know they were called the geographic until I came into AA and you told me they were geographic. I just thought it was people I was trying to get away from, people who were complicating my life that found it necessary to leave them. So I went from dropping out of high school to enlisting in the, in the Air Force, which I, they dropped me out, right? They were really nice to me. They gave me an honorable, a general discharge with the inability to adjust to military life. How nice was that? You know, the thing that's funny and humorous about that beyond that is they could have just said inability to adjust to life. Because I couldn't face life on life's terms. It was too painful for me without alcohol. Because alcohol, as we know, is a, is a sedative. As Father Martin says, it, it puts to sleep that which made me uncomfortable. And I was uncomfortable all the time. The further I... The more I drank, 
the more uncomfortable I became. Isn't that amazing? The more we're taking the medication from that which we are uncomfortable from, we get more uncomfortable. Because by this point, friends were looking at me and saying, you drink a little bit too much for us. I had guys who cooked meth who thought I was crazy. Because <laughs> I did everything alcoholically. You know, you, you told me, take one line, I take five. You said take one hit, this stuff is really good, like canola, you know. I would take, I would take just, you know, two inches of that and, and be comatose on the porch. And all I could do was move my neck because I did everything alcoholically. Everything alcoholically. I had never met a time where I would go into a bar. Did you ever have the bartender, hey, Robert, you want to just have one? I never told him no. If I did, it was, I'll take one for the road, especially in Las Vegas. You could grab a half pint, hey, let me have a half pint of old smugglers, whatever it is, and I'll take it with me, and I'll drink on the way home. You know, that was my, that was my way to leave. And, and, and we lived that way. We lived that way over and over and over. And, and we find out, and again, a cliche, I love them to death. They're cliches because they work. If they didn't work, they wouldn't be cliches. It's not that we wanted to die. It's just that we didn't know how to live. I didn't know how to live. I didn't know how to give back to you what you were freely giving to me. So when I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous back in February 9th of 1986, went to a treatment center, they started taking us to AA right away. I walked into a lineup club, very similar. It's one of the things I like about this club. It's very similar to where I got sober in Las Vegas at the turning point. And, and I walked in there and there was a group of men and women in the front and meetings were in the back and playing pinnacle, playing pool, playing cribbage, all games that are like some, I was better than others. And they had pinball machines and just having a great time fellowshipping. And I thought, man, this is pretty cool. These, these people don't drink. I'm, I'm not very wise. I, I'm just sort of surveying the room. And I know that my detox, my treatment center brought me here. And they started going in meetings and I would go to meetings and I started to feel very uncomfortable. Because I learned early on that honesty, rigorous honesty, was an essential part to recovery. And so I thought I could find an easier, softer way. And that was treating the program as Alcoholics Anonymous like a buffet, like Sizzler or Chuckarama. You know, you kind of go in there and you say, you know, I want some of this, I want some of that, I don't want any of that. Because I didn't want step four, step five. I could barely tolerate step two. Step one, I wanted to superficially say that I was alcoholic just so you would think I was one of you. And so I, I treated recovery, again, like a buffet. And finally, at day 71, um, it became too painful for me because I couldn't tell you the truth. I couldn't tell you how afraid I was. And I was afraid of everything at that time. My parents, they were gone. 
my second wife. She couldn't get rid of me quick enough. Um, brothers and sisters stopped talking to me. My children were so resentful on me because of what I did. I was unemployable. And I came into this room and I was afraid that if you knew who I was and what I did and where I went, in my mind of fear, I would be the only person in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous that you would ask not to come back. And I, and I know that sounds egotistical, but that's how far my fear went. I couldn't tell you how afraid I was. You wouldn't like me. And when you know you're living in the last house in the block, I couldn't stand being asked to leave. And so before you asked me to leave, I left. Because lack of power, that was my dilemma. And I had to exert my power. And that is do what I did. And that I would always leave. And I remember trying to recapture that feeling of being an almost. And I, and I remember being at the Rhett Butler Motel over on 15th and Fremont in Las Vegas. It's kind of a classy place. You pay by the week, you know. And uh, my dad paid for a week for me. And I'd go across to the Sundowner Saloon, Caddy Corner, from, from this fine establishment. Uh, and, and I tried again to recapture that feeling of being an almost. And I couldn't. I tried to get drunk. And it was different this time. Because when I stood in front of the mirror on February 9th of 1986, there was voices in my head of all the disappointment. They would say, Bobby, 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 what are you doing? Remember those family members? How they would just, everyone would say, what are you doing? Why are you trying to, why are you living this way? Why aren't you, all the things that they would say along the way. And this particular morning, the voices weren't there. And that's when I realized I was 32 years old and I was going to die and there was nothing I could do about it. But as I sat in this hotel room and I tried to recapture that feeling of being an almost, the voices weren't gone, but they were there. Keep coming back, it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. We'll love you till you can learn how to love yourself. You know, think first, but live easy. All the phrases, all the things, as I tried to get drunk, all these things you had been telling me were more powerful than the alcohol I was trying to forget. And on April 25th of 1986, I walked back into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my sponsor, Max, he... Um, he said to me, welcome back. And I tried to explain to him where I was and what I was doing. And uh, all he wanted to know was whether or not I wanted it. And I didn't, I didn't understand terms at that time. So I would say to Maxwell, I really need this. He said, you don't understand. There's a city dying filled with people 
who need this. So if this is something that you need, let's just be friends. But if there's something that you want and you're willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. And at a, at a meeting he never goes to, let alone say an hour after the meeting, he said to me, if you really want this, you'll get on your knees right now and recite after me. And this is what he said. God, I offer myself to thee to build and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And that was on April 25th of 1986. And that's when I conceded to my innermost self that I was alcoholic. And the rest of the steps became just a matter of doing them. Until I'm willing to admit in step one that I am powerless. And if you read the, the doctor's opinion, it says a, a, a phenomena of craving, but it also says on page 30, the great obsession of every alcoholic is to drink like a normal person, therefore not an alcoholic. So the obsession doesn't occur when I drink. The craving occurs when I drink. The obsession tells me I should have the first one. Does that make sense? I mean, there's a difference between craving and obsession. And it was a belief in God that got me past that obsession. It's what worked me through obsession. And, and when I realized for the first time that I was an alcoholic and that there was a plan of recovery designed just for people like you and me, I don't know if I was excited about that because and, and in the 12 and 12, as Bill, Bill, Bill wrote the 12 and 12, like, 15, 16 years after the big book, I think it was 1953, something like that, the 12 and 12 was written. So they had a number of years in the steps from 1939 when this big book was published. But Bill says, who likes to admit complete defeat? Practically no one. But until we admit complete defeat, there is no way that I'm going to think that I need to be restored to sanity. Why would I? I haven't, I'm not really powerless. My life is inconvenient, but it's not unmanageable necessarily. Now, my friend Pete the Great told me, and he was, God, he was probably sober 20 years when he told me this back in 86. He said, step one is the only step we need to do to perfection. Because trust me, if you follow me around enough, you'll know that I make mistakes throughout my, my daily life. Just ask my wife or ask my kids. They'll, they'll line up to tell you. Uh, and but as long as I don't make a mistake in step one I'm home free now as a chronic alcoholic it's, it's not just about not drinking I need to replace my will with God's will because if I don't do that then my ego is going to catch up with me my ego says I know better than God and once I know better than God I might 
think that I'm not as powerless over alcohol because I've been sober 37 and a half years. How dangerous that is. Because Father Martin, if you've never seen Chalk Talk, you've got to look it up on the internet, just YouTube, Father Martin Chalk Talk. Father Martin talks about, and, and so does the doctor's opinion, talks about, and in the big book it says, we have a progressive uh, illness. Over any considerable period, things get worse, never better. Father Martin says that we don't just, and I've been out on enough 12-step calls in Las Vegas to know this is true, we don't pick up where we would have been. We pick up where we would be. So I don't pick back up at a quart or a pint. In a relatively short period of time, this has been my experience on 12-step calls, over, a, consider, over a, a short period of time, I go from a half pint to a pint to a quart to a half gallon to a half gallon to debt. And if you've known anyone with any, any period of time, any, any recovery at all, a decade or two, you'll know how quickly we go downhill. Because it, it, it's, like, it's like making up for lost time. That, 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 that craving says, oh, I know where we would have been. Let's see how quickly we can get there. But the steps are the most valuable thing for any alcoholic. To the degree that to this day I do steps 10, 11, and 12. I continue to take personal inventory when I'm wrong, promptly admit it. I sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. And having had the spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, I tried to carry this message. Most importantly, I practice these principles in all my affairs. In all my affairs. Not, not affairs I think are necessary, but all my affairs. And all is an inclusive word means there's nothing else. There is one who has all power, right? May you, that one is God, may you find him now. Half measures availed us, nothing. So we begin to take that journey along the steps. And if you're not happy, joyous, and free, as it talks about on page 133, the likelihood is you're not doing the steps. But I get to this point in my personal recovery that I'm starting to get uncomfortable because the further I go in the steps, the more honest I need to be. And I was only honest enough to not drink. This was after my relapse. But I, you, ever, you ever get to that point where you're face to face with the danger that you are to yourself. You know that not only are you the gun, but you're the trigger. Capable of blowing your brains out at any given moment, either by actually killing yourself or going out to drink, which for many of us is death. So I went to my sponsor and I said, hey, Jack, there has to be, and I was scared, there has to be some magic formula. There has to be some panacea, something that I can do that will guarantee that I never drink again because if I go back out, I'm never coming back. And I got introduced to service. You know, I have found that through the 12 steps, it prepares me to have something to give away. Because obviously you can't transmit something that you haven't got. It's, you know, I can't, I can't, 
write you a check if I don't have money in my bank account. I can't Venmo you because it'll come up insufficient funds. In the same way with the hay. I can't give you something I don't have. It's impossible. If you come over to my house to eat and I invite you for a meal and I open my refrigerator and it's empty, you're going to say, but there's nothing to eat. But when I've gone shopping, right? Now you have a selection. Now you have some things that you can pick from. But the steps and service are probably what have kept me sober this entire journey. So, so I, I asked Jack, and I and I was just willing to turn my will in my life. Bob D, a friend of mine in Las Vegas, says this one great story. He talks about uh, about surrender, about step three, and uh, in, in one guy who knows an AA says to him, "If you turn your will in your life over to this chair." I promise you a miracle. So Bob says, well, I turn my will and my life over to the chair. And he said, what's the miracle? He says, your life is no longer run by an idiot. And Bob says, he wasn't even offended by that. Because he knew the guy was right. So it was a relief to, to finally not own my own pain. And for people like you and me, to not own our pain. It doesn't absolve us of what we did, but it makes sense that we were self-will run riot. We were just trying to escape pain. We weren't trying to create harm for other people. We just didn't know how to act. So we drank and we drank and we drank and we withdrew and we withdrew and we withdrew. We withdrew from people who would do anything for us. You know, the Apostle Paul, whether you believe it or not, there's this guy named Apostle Paul. And he said in Corinthians, he said, he said, there was a time I would give you the shirt off my back. Have I now become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And these people became my enemy. Because they knew what I did. That alcohol, it was interrupting everything that they wanted to do or be to me. And so... Not drinking was only the beginning because I wanted to not drink one day at a time for the rest of my life. So how do you do that if you have an obsession? See, my insanity doesn't start until I stop drinking. The insanity isn't how much I drank. The insanity is I want to drink after I haven't. Because that's the obsession. That's the insanity. And all I have to do is come to believe that a power greater than me can restore me to a sense of sanity. Where I, I forget where that self-destruct button is, let alone no longer want to put it or touch it. And then I turn my will and my life toward the care of God as I understood God. And at that time, my life is no longer mine. So step four becomes just a, a lesson. I make a fearless, moral and fearless inventory of my life. But it's not my life. I've turned that over to a loving God as he would express himself in our group conscience. No condemnation, no fear, because God knows everything anyway. And it was almost a relief for me 
Because I already knew the truth. So step five, admitted to God, to myself, and to another human being. I already knew. Obviously, God didn't know, but Pete didn't know. So I had to sit down with Pete and say, hey, these are the things that I did. And Pete said, oh, you think you're crazy. Listen, what I did. And all of a sudden, I began to really feel that camaraderie, that friendliness. It says on page 17 in the big book. That is indescribably wonderful. I don't even, I can't describe it in words, but I know it's wonderful because I want to come back. I want to come back, come back. So once I get to steps five, four and five, I understand that I have defects of character. By the way, defects of character and shortcomings are the same thing. Bill understood grammatically that it would be redundant to say the same thing twice. So we use two different words for the same thing. Do the research, you'll find that out. So defects of character, but there's a difference. I was entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character and then humility takes over in step seven because I humbly asked him to remove these shortcomings. And then step eight is rather simple because step eight adds a few people but it's primarily the people that I harmed in step four through my resentment, my fear, and my sex. And so I already had the list. Essentially, I just had to copy it over from step four to step eight. And, and I became willing. That was a little difficult because I had to understand what it was like to injure them or others. You know, and people I harmed, I harmed some really good people quite badly. And, and when I went to make the amends to my first wife, who's the mother of my two oldest children, um, I had to be very careful with that, you know, because I was an adulterer and I was a very bad person. I was running drugs and weapons and other things at the time. And I was that guy who would go out for milk and three days later show up and wonder why you're mad at me. That's who I became. And so making amends to such a person was very difficult because how do you make a complete amends but not harm them any more than they've already been harmed. And that's where that sponsorship really came into play, providing that guidance. You know, and once I get through step nine, as I understand the program of recovery, it's an interesting word, uh, and I love words. Step 10 is continued to take personal inventory and when you're wrong, promptly admit it. So let's look at that word continued for a moment. So if you tell me to continue something, you're telling me to keep doing what I have been doing. What I've been, what have I been doing? I've been doing steps one through nine, which leads me in my analytical brain to believe that every step one through nine is a form of inventory. Otherwise, step 10 wouldn't say continue. Or it would say continue doing six, seven, eight, nine, or four and five, it would it would it would isolate those steps that were inventory steps. But since it doesn't, every step is an inventory. Because I'm taking an inventory when I admit I'm powerless over alcohol that my life would become. That's that's an inventory. Looking to see the unmanageability in my life is an inventory. I have to take a personal inventory when I when I, when I believe I need to be restored to sanity. That's an inventory. I need to look and say, stop looking crazy. You need restoration of some sorts because you're a danger to everyone. 
And obviously, we've already had the example of my life was being run by an idiot. So why not turn my will and my life over to the care of God? And once I do that, I know I did some screwed up things along the way. So taking a moral and fearless inventory is to do that house cleaning is really necessary. And since we're only as sick as our secrets, I have to take an inventory to find out that I really want to be honest with you to tell you these things. Step six and seven, they're self-explanatory. We're taking an inventory to find out we have defects of character and then we have shortcomings in step seven, so we're taking an inventory there. We're taking an inventory in step eight when I realize I've harmed a lot of people. And I'm taking an inventory whether or not I really want to be honest in step nine where I make direct amends to those people wherever possible. So every step is an inventory step. So nowhere along the line are you asking me to do something I haven't been doing. Read the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Every step is written in the past tense. Every step. Admitted. Came to believe. Became willing. Made A. Admitted to. Were entirely ready. Humbly asked. Made a list. Made direct. Continued. Sought. Having had. Everything is past tense. It's one of the only therapies programs known to man that assumes you've already done it. Why not do it? Because I guarantee you, when you do, this is my favorite page of the big book and I'm going to close with this because I love this page. Oh, by the way, I love page, I love Roman numeral 17. And this is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and then I'll read page 17. It is also indicated, it, it is also indicated that strenuous work one alcoholic to another was vital to permanent recovery. That's crazy. We come from a people that had so many problems in the doctor's opinion. We, we, I forget the term, we dissolved of ever solving them all. We go from that person to a person who can have permanent recovery. You know, in, Bill, in, in Dr. Bob's story, The Good Old Boys, on, on, which is the first story of the um, um, personal stories, it says, are you ready? That Bob died with permanent sobriety. Don't you love that word, permanent? Which means your last drink could be your last drink. Isn't that crazy? So April 25th at 10 p.m. could very well be the last time I ever took a drink. So here we are on page 17, my favorite page, and I have a lot of favorite pages of the big book. But page 17, it unlocks the magic that is Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's there as a solution. We have Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. We are average Americans, all sections of this country, and many of its occupations uh, are represented as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are a people who normally would not mix, but there exists amongst us a fellowship, a, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck, 
when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Unlike the feeling of the ship's passengers, however, our joint escape from disaster does not subside as we go our own individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which now binds us. But that in itself would have not held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. My name is Robert. I'm alcoholic. Thank you. <laughs>